Well, he was in uh, the War of 1812. He was in uh, northern New York, where so many people were recruited, and he became a, a fifer using the uh, a fife uh, as they marched. And uh, when he then got into politics uh, in northern New York uh, in 1828-29 as a publisher, uh, some of his opponents called him Pfeiffer Phelps, uh, with P-H, Pfeiffer Phelps, uh, to uh, kind of mock him uh, and said that's all he was in the military, was just a Pfeiffer. Uh, later uh, in the church, he uh, played the role of uh, Satan or the devil in the temple ceremonies. And that uh, created quite a bit of laughter and mirth because he acted everything out so completely. Uh, and so one of his uh, nicknames was the devil also. W.W. Phelps, a character you probably know throughout church history, but do you know all of the impact that he had even that we still see on the church today, what you're thinking? Wait, wasn't he back in the time? Yes, but what do we? Uh, what are we still impacted from things that he did in his life? Quite a bit. Am I going to tell you what it is? No. Will Bruce Van Orden, my guest in this episode, be the one to tell you about some of the amazing things that W.W. Phelps did? Yes, he will. So let's get to it. I want to say thank you to everyone who emails guest suggestions, uh, great constructive criticisms, feedback, all of the things. Contact at theculturalhall.com. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this episode of The Cultural Hall. Jesus landed to live righteously. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. We are visiting with Bruce Van Orden, who sent an email, contact at theculturalhall.com, and said the following, I am the author of the recent biography, We'll Sing and We'll Shout, The Life and Times of W.W. Phelps. Would you be interested in discussing this on The Cultural Hall? I've been interviewed for various podcasts about Phelps. I've spoken about him to numerous scholarly and also neighborhood groups. Are you interested? To which I responded to Bruce, yes, absolutely yes. How soon can we have this conversation? And here we are. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning to you. Thank you. Now, let me ask you, uh, Van Orden, it seems to me like there is some uh, genealogy within the LDS Church of Van Orden. Am I making something up? Uh, yes, it does exist. Uh, my great-great-grandfather, uh, William Van Orden, was converted uh, and came to Nauvoo with his family and was a close associate of Joseph Smith, was part of the uh, Nauvoo Legion that helped protect his body and that of Hiram Smith when they passed away. And then uh, he contracted pneumonia at that time and died just a few days then, later than Joseph Smith. And then the Van Ordens uh, came west and participated in uh, in various uh, capacities, uh, including the founding of Lewiston, Utah, in Cache Valley. Okay, okay. And a few of us, uh, maybe you've heard of Del Van Orden, who was editor of the Church News for about 20 years. That Maybe that is where it is, but as I hear the name Van Orden, I always know that uh, members of the Church know their genealogy, so I knew I knew if I asked the question that you would at least be able to give me some of those roots. But let's let's talk about you. Where Who is Bruce? Where is Bruce from? What is his story? I was born uh, right after World War II in Salt Lake City LDS Hospital. My dad served four years, three months, and 21 days in World War II. He, he made that uh, numera, uh, number uh, obvious by frequent retelling. Uh, and he came, uh, he, he entered the Army before Pearl Harbor. He was drafted uh, as part of the uh, lottery system. Uh, so he was uh, engaged in, in the early battles in North Africa. Anyway, uh, he was able to come back to Utah before the end of the war and uh, 
still served in the U.S. Army as a MP, military policeman. And he met my mother, uh, who was working in uh, a war industry in Salt Lake. And they got married while he was still in the military. Uh, and I came 10 months later. So I'm a war baby. Now, now, when I hear that, and I hear you speak about the fact that he said four years, three months, twenty-one days, and all these, you know, these various things, that that to me sounds like maybe a strict upbringing within the church. Is that accurate? Absolutely, yes, uh, uh, very much. Uh, we were transferred out to Nebraska, so uh, a good share of my uh, growing up was uh, in uh, a non-Mormon setting, and my dad and mother were really the only. Uh, Utahns out there and people look to them for leadership. Uh, so uh, it was an important part of my upbringing, and that's for sure. With his training within the military and certainly within his training in the church, that to me sounds like he also served in various leadership positions throughout your young adult years or your young years. Well, he was uh, with the Union Pacific as a special agent, which was law enforcement. And uh, when we went to North Platte, Nebraska, he didn't have specific hours, but he worked seven days a week in one form or another and therefore wasn't available to become the branch president, although he served in the presidency. He was also in the district presidency and was the district mission president. Uh, he was the only 70 in that whole area. Uh, they looked him for leadership, but he was not the actual president. And then he came back and uh, to Utah and was high priest group leader, uh, a good solid leader. So then where, do, where does it go from you? You're in Nebraska, and then is that where you graduate from high school or...? Uh, I came back at the beginning of my high school career when we were transferred back, uh, and I went to Skyline High School in Salt Lake. And uh, then we have that time of graduation, so it's either college or mission or maybe both? My dad instructed me to go to the University of Utah, and I said, uh, no, I want to go to BYU. So I went to BYU, <laughs> declared my own independence. <laughs> uh, I was called to the South German mission, served from 65 to 67. And uh, Germany's had an impact upon me. Uh, that became my uh, major, the German language and German literature. And I've been back about 15 times and spoken in their language to many groups over there, Latter-day Saint groups and non-Latter-day Saint groups, what, including about W.W. Phelps, as a matter of fact. What does, uh, and we'll certainly get to where we talk about W.W. Phelps, which is this book that you've written. I would be curious, what is Germany like in the mid-60s? It was part of the uh, economic miracle going on right then. It's, uh, in history, we, that's what they call it. Uh, the Marshall Plan uh, gave all kinds of seed money to the rebuilding of Germany. And, and by the mid-1950s, uh, it was going through a major economic metamorphosis. I could see uh, things had changed from World War II. As I look back on it now, I went there just 19 to 20 years after the end of the war, after Hitler passed. Uh, and... And as I look back on it now, that's awfully close to the yes, time. Yes. And, and, and there obviously was an effect, although in my mind, it was a long time ago. Uh, I didn't realize that I was right in the middle of that, that economic change over, and it continued to be very robust for the next 30 years. And so Germany is a powerful economic machine in the European Union, to be sure. Now, with your 15 interactions with Germany, give or take, I know that's not maybe an exact number, or maybe it is, uh, have any of those services ever been within mission calls or church duties that you've been back for? Well, uh, I directed the Vienna Study Abroad in 1992 for BYU, and so we had a lot of contact with the German-speaking people, went into Germany frequently. No specific calls. Uh, I became closely acquainted, however, because I was in the church educational system. I became acquainted with all the CES uh, leadership uh, in German-speaking Europe. 
they became my friends and uh, it worked out that they invited me uh, uh, to come speak to many of their young adult groups. And so I've been throughout Germany, uh, largely under their auspices speaking. So in that true form of rebelliousness, and I say that sort of poking at you a little bit, you said, no, Dad, I'm not going to the University of Utah. I'm going to go to a church school in Provo. You go to BYU and decide you wanted to study what? You sort of tipped your your hand in that we know that you end up working for the church. But what did you want to study? Originally, it was journalism. I was uh, very much involved in uh, uh, journalism in Skyline High School. I was a sports editor. I got a journalism scholarship. And I, I wrote for the Daily Universe prior to my mission. Uh, but on my mission, I found that I really liked teaching large groups. And I heard about seminary teaching. And then I attended, not long after my return from my mission, a gathering sponsored by seminary and institute for young men who may want to get into the training program. And it was there that I changed my life's course, basically, and decided I wanted to go into the church educational system. I needed to have a teaching certificate, so I did that in German and history. Uh, And in 1970, I began my teaching career in seminary. Now, people that uh, are Patreon saints of the Cultural Hall, they get to see the video, and they may have seen your wife pop in uh, just briefly on the video. I would be curious, how did you meet her, and what what was that kind of setup was it the quick as we assume you know you get back from your mission and you're married within six months at BYU my mission president suggested about two years <laughs> it was in the it ended up being 19 months uh, after my mission uh Karen and I uh, met in the BYU 36th ward about four months after I returned from my mission we got engaged uh, our bishop was Lavelle Edwards uh, assistant BYU football coach at the time uh, so, yeah, we met at BYU and got married uh, when we still had a year left, both of us, in finishing our college careers. And so you say, hey, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a uh, career out of this working for the church. Some people look at that and um, they they consider it sort of their life's calling, right? You know, we, we see this far more in, in evangelical folks that they go, I feel called to do this, right? That, that you know, this is my calling. Do you feel like that's what... Um, working in the church educational system was for you? Absolutely. Now, a lot of people think that uh, Seminary Institute is for people to be able to teach the gospel principles and the history of the church, and what a wonderful thing to be able to teach those things. Uh, In that meeting, though, that I attended, uh, they emphasized that far more important than the subject matter were the kids themselves, the students. Uh, They convinced me of that, and uh, even though I have become a scholar and a writer and a historian, and I wrote on many uh, gospel and, and scriptural topics as well, even though I'm engaged in scholarship, uh, always the most important to me uh, were the students, always. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love my students and, and, and my major dedication was to them and relating well to them and helping them along their way. So in a way, it seems like this is a fairly... Uh, not standard or typical. I don't want to. I don't want to generalize your experience, but you, you, you know, you kind of go to BYU. You go on a mission. You come back within a couple of years. You get married. You find that you're going to be working for the church, and then do you immediately go to work for uh, the church at BYU, or are there other sort of uh, stopping points along the way? There were several stopping points. I started at uh, my alma mater, Skyline, as a seminary teacher for the first three years. Uh, I made it known along the way that I was interested in getting my higher degrees and going on and teaching institute if it were possible. And they came just three years later. In 1973, we were transferred to uh, Southern California. Uh, and for six years, I taught in the institute program uh, in San Bernardino County. 
while I was there, I became acquainted with the, the curriculum writers in the church office building for Seminary and Institute. And one summer, uh, 1978, we went and I helped write and they liked what I was doing. So uh, in the year 1979, we were transferred to Salt Lake and I became a curriculum writer at the headquarters. And, uh, and then I continued to work on my doctor's degree. In 1986, I became a uh, religion professor in the Department of Church History and Doctrine. So I want to go back to real quick to the 70s. As I as I hear 70s, California, and institute teacher, I feel like you're on the front lines in some ways. When I think of the 70s and, you know, the free love and all these things, and we think California may have been, you know, grand central for, for that sort of movement, to be able to instruct those of faith completely on the other side of that, w- was that real or am I just buying into what I see in movies and books and all of those things? Uh, well, it was real, uh, and uh, it was in the air all the time. Uh, the, the fact that we had our own way of living and behaving and standards we would uphold uh, versus the world. Uh, so it was we versus them uh, to a certain, uh, to a huge degree in those days. Uh, by the way, uh, I don't have that kind of attitude quite the same today. Uh, I've evolved too. But um, but it was uh, us against the world, and we were going to do our part in getting ready for the second coming, which we thought was within uh, our lifetime, maybe in and around the year 2000. That was our attitude back in the 1970s. And then you finally find yourself arrived, or at least seemingly arrived, in 86, as you become yeah. a professor uh, at BYU in religious education. Correct. Now, was that like a, hey, we made it. Wahoo. Uh, I, I guess so. <laughs> I, although I didn't uh, want to uh, go around spreading how great I was, because I had reached it but i it was something i wanted uh and had worked toward and felt good about uh but i definitely dedicated myself even more than my scholarship to my students and in a sense it uh, delayed my finishing the work on ww phelps which i started in earnest when i became a professor there but there were so many delays along the way that i really didn't finish it until after i was retired so, so you get to BYU, it's the mid to late 80s, and uh, you have finally arrived in this. Is the job, this religious professor at BYU, everything that you thought it would be? Or was were there parts of it where you went, well, oh, you know, I didn't anticipate this, or I didn't think it would be this hard, or this easy, or these students with this? What Were there any sort of surprises as you finally came into that dream job? Uh, uh, both surprises and, and then not being surprised. Uh, I, I knew that uh, having taken classes there as an undergraduate, I, I knew what it was like to uh, engage in those classes, and I tried to model my behavior after some of my favorite professors that I had had. I, I, I certainly tried to get to know every one of the students. Uh, I discovered, for example, that about a third of them came from uh, Latter-day Saint settings in uh, where we were the ma- majority in Utah and southern, southeastern Idaho and, and, and the like. Another third were from uh, areas in the west like Arizona, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, uh, where the Latter-day Saints ha- had a significant presence. And then about a third were in areas where the Latter-day Saints were a distinct minority. And so all three different kinds of groups. And I, uh, each semester I identified where each student came from and would try to relate to them on that basis. I also asked them to write some uh, biographical information no matter what the course was. Uh, I did teach a, uh, introduction to family history and genealogy and really got involved with their family histories there. But in every case, I tried to get to know them and their background. Uh, so that, that was something I knew was part of it. 
as time went on, I became very discouraged about the political ramifications of a university. It happened in all of the departments. It wasn't just us. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, even in religious education, there were people who were trying to uh, climb really fast. And the process of it sometimes would put other people down. And there were political ramifications about all kinds of decisions that were made hmm. uh, uh, and who would be our leaders and who would have particular posts and who would man various committee assignments. Uh, I, I got quite frustrated over many of the political activities, I have to admit. Yeah, it seems like it's one of those things where if all you had to worry about was connecting with the kids and teaching good, you know, rich principles and, and history and, and, you know, those kind of things, like it seems like a dream job, but it seems like everything else would be the things where you just are banging your head going, why is this? Why aren't we just focused on the kids? Why can't this just be the thing? That's often the case. That's true. And, and I can understand it to a certain degree. And it's not entirely the fault of every one of the human beings I interacted with. Uh, it, it came uh, uh, as we ascertained what we were trying to follow what the, the leading authorities of the church were saying, but that wasn't always consistent. And when it came to writing history, there certainly was a, a period of time there. What, what do we say? How much can we say? Uh, are we limited? Uh, other people attack us in religious education because we're too narrow-minded. You know, we had all these issues that were floating all around, and it, and then that led to political infighting to a certain degree. And if you look at just the way the the church has written its own history over its existence, right? Like what we could write today, twenty twenty one, is a far cry from what we would have written as a church in nineteen seventy, or if we go back to nineteen twenty. Like the narratives and the stories that we have shared and our openness of our of our goodness and also of some of those not so good, those flaws, those different things throughout the time. What I deem would have once upon a time been called. Uh, anti-Mormon, not because it was trying to defeat the church, but it was just because it was a flaw within the church, now is shared openly because we have to be the owners of our own history. I learned in my graduate studies that you follow the evidence as a historian. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you don't make things up. You don't hide things. You, you deal with it as it is, warts and all if necessary. Uh, and yet uh, we were under a great deal of pressure in uh, by those who were being paid by tithing funds of the church uh, to not publish anything that would re bring up questions and concerns. And there were times when I had to actually shut down any some of my aspirational writings for that purpose. This was in the uh, 1980s into the 1990s. Uh, you've heard of the uh, September 6th who were excommunicated in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was over uh, those issues of whether they had a right or not to uh, publish on uh, critical and, and controversial items within the church. And, and it, it frustrated me that I was kind of limited. Uh, and you're right, in 2021, we're in an entirely different setting. Uh, it, proof is, of course, the Joseph Smith Papers Project, uh, the uh, series on, uh, called Saints, uh, uh, all sorts of things that been allowed to come out in the name of the church even uh, that allow for transparency. But I remember when I was a curriculum writer in the church office building, I was told very distinctly, you can't say these things. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the apostles, I had an interview with him and he said, don't you bring up polygamy at all in any of your writing. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Uh, so uh, times have definitely changed. Oh yeah. And, and 
I mean, a particular point, maybe towards the end of this, I'll ask you about it, but to be able to be a person of faith and have those conversations with leaders of the church, like there's a certain part of that that goes, wait, why are we, why are we hiding these things? Why, why, why would we, if it's a gospel of truth, why wouldn't we let all the truth be known? I want to, I want to put pause on that um, because I do want to uh, get into W.W. Phelps, which is the subject of the book that you've written. I would to ask you one question before we take a break. You are now retired um, from, from teaching at BYU. I would be curious, what is the thing that you miss the most about your professional time? Well, uh, like I said, I love my students and I enjoyed relating with them day by day and, and having mutual feedback one with another. Uh, that was so fun and I, I miss having that fun. So let's take a break. When we come back, we have got 10 facts about W.W. Phelps uh, that I am going to, uh, I'll introduce the fact and then we'll kind of talk around it, why it's significant, why we should know it. We'll try and get through the first five in the second block and then we'll take a break and come back and do the second five there in the third block and uh, we'll do that coming up. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, please, what are you waiting for? Go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall and make a pledge. If you like this this show that's available in podcast form, you find yourself being entertained, uh, being educated, being inspired by some of the content that we put out. Uh, well, this this ain't free, y'all. It takes time and it takes equipment and, and all those things cost money. And so we would love it if you would financially support us. It's a simple ask. Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. And if, in fact, you find yourself to be a Patreon saint, you get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where you can be with other people who are also paying for the privilege to not only see the videos but have some of the behind-the-scenes chat. It's Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. So W.W. Phelps is the subject of your book, Bruce Van Orden. And the first point that you said is Brother Phelps always went by W.W. Phelps, not William Phelps or not William W. Phelps, as he is often identified in Latter-day Saint literature. And I would to ask you, why does it matter? Well, uh, it's common, uh, I think, for uh, modern-day people to uh, use just the first and last name. I, I've heard people referred to as Parley Pratt and Boyd Packer and Dallin Oaks and uh, Gordon Hankley, uh, not even using the middle initials. Uh, and in Saints, uh, Brother Phelps is sometimes referred to as William Phelps, but he never went by that. Mm -hmm. uh, in all of his mastheads, it was W.W. Phelps. In all of his signatures, it was that. And when he's recorded in the historical documents, uh, it's W.W. Phelps, but then these documents, like in the Joseph Smith papers, they put in brackets after the first W, I-L-L-I-A-M, to show that it's William. Uh, and then in all the hymns that I grew up with, uh, seeing so many of them, and that's what inspired me to begin with, uh, at the bottom of the hymn, it says William W. Phelps, and so I figured that was it. I, I just like to be uh, true to the, uh, the record as it was back in the day. Right, well, I mean, so to me... It I mean, I go by Richie to most people, but growing up, I was Rick, and to my family, I'm Richard, and, and it, it's interesting, as you've noted, being uh, referred to as William Phelps or W.W. W. Phelps or W. William Phelps, uh, as referred to in some church historical things, I have at times gone, is this the same guy? And, and I'm trying to draw connections to know if this is, in fact, the same guy. So for... 
uh, I guess, relational purposes and for putting it correct in our mind, when we hear W.W. Phelps, we also need to know that that could very well be the William Phelps that is referred. Is there another individual that's closely named that he sometimes would get confused with? No. no. Uh, okay. So, uh, he had a son named uh, William Waterman Phelps, who in a sense was W.W. Phelps, but he he always went by uh, Waterman. <laughs> That's the closest one. So, so I guess before we leave this point, number one, the W.W. Phelps, the first W is William. What is his second W? Wines, uh, W-I-N-E-S. And maybe uh, people have made fun of that because they thought it meant li- uh, liquor or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was named after William Wines, a, a famous New Jersey Revolutionary War hero who uh, was essentially the godfather of uh, of W. W. Phelps. Uh, he was a benefactor to the family. Brother Phelps's mother was very close to this Wines, and so she named her first son, who uh, who it is, uh, William Wines, after her huh. benefactor. All right. So number two, you say W. W. Phelps can be identified as the. Thomas Jefferson of Mormonism because he promoted the power of the press and effectively articulated the aims of the movement. He was the church's first newspaper editor and editorial writer. He also published the Book of Commandments and helped publish the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. So let's unpack all that. The first uh, publication of our church, of course, was the Book of Mormon, but that had to be sublet. And we had to pay enormous amounts of money to make that even possible. We didn't have our own printing press. We didn't have our own editor. We didn't have anybody who knew how to typeset. We didn't know those things. We had to let other people do it. And it caused heaps of problems. Uh, but as soon as W.W. W. Phelps came to the church uh, officially in June 1831, although he was known by Joseph Smith prior to that time, uh, immediately we had a guy who could do all those things. He could write. He could typeset. He could publish. He could print. Uh, he knew what the kind of printer uh, to get, and, and he was uh, given church funds to buy that printing press, and he established a printing office in Independence, Missouri uh, in 1832 with that printing press he purchased in Cincinnati, and he uh, and his biggest uh, objective was to print the Book of Commandments, but also the newspaper, the Evening and the Morning Star, and uh, so we could now print our own things, and every faithful Latter-day Saint who knew about the newspaper subscribed to it, whether they were in Ohio uh, or Missouri, and it, and it contained uh, many portions of the Book of Mormon uh, that he printed in there, and the new revelations that were coming out. So that was the source of information to church members in those early days. And, and so having a guy who knew his printing business at a time when the print, uh, when newspapers were the main medium of the age uh, meant a great deal to the church. What was the conversion story like for W.W. W. Phelps? How did he find the church? You noted, you, you noted that uh, Joseph Smith knew of him before he converted. How, how did he come into the church? Well, he was always a, a seeker. Uh, that's the term we use in history, a person who didn't join any particular uh, denomination uh, and was not a professor, as they called it, professor, a particular denomination. Uh, he was a believer in Christ, and uh, and he believed that somehow that New Testament church should exist again. Uh, when uh, He heard about rumblings. He lived in Canandaigua. He was a, an editor of the major newspaper in Canandaigua, which was just uh, 12 miles south of Palmyra, and lived miles south of Manchester, where Joseph Smith was. And he heard all about these things. He knew Martin Harris. He was involved in a political movement that Martin Harris was, too, so he knew him. When the Book of Mormon came out, he knew all the other newspaper editors. Of course he did. They, they all knew each other. They shared each other's 
work. And, and so uh, he saw that notification. He traveled probably by horseback on the Canandaigua road up to Palmyra, purchased a number of copies of the Book of Mormon in early April, right after it was published, came back and sold some of those copies in his own bookstore in his printing office in Canandaigua, read the book uh, day and night with his wife, and was converted to the truthfulness of that book uh, by the end of April of 1830. Uh, uh, but because he was involved in politics and in publishing, he didn't uh, make the switch, although he was criticized for his interest in Mormonism. He ended up being jailed by uh, people who uh, helped run financially his newspaper office. And that was the last straw. And so he, he left them. Uh, he had already met Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon uh, on a couple of occasions back in December of 1830. And he knew of everyone going to Ohio. So he just picked up his family and uh, in June of 1831 and went to Ohio and presented himself on June 14th at the doorstep where Joseph Smith was living and said, here am I, I'm ready to do the work. Uh, is there a revelation that pertains to me? Joseph Smith went and got that revelation within minutes. It's section 55 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And this called the uh, W.W. Phelps to the work and identified his work as a printer. And when they went to Missouri together a week later, uh, he was identified in section 57 as the printer unto the church. Which is significant. A lot of people will look in, in the early days of the church and the fact that it was able to grow because of the the growth of the press, because of the work that W.W. Phelps did. Being able to share the message relies back on to the, to the fact that he could help mass produce this message. Precisely, yes, exactly. When, when, I, when I hear that, and, and unfortunately this will show you sort of my cynical brain um, that, that applies into this, do you think that there's anything that denotes in W.W. Phelps' character that would think maybe this would just be a business opportunity? He had had the opportunity to meet uh, Joseph and, and Martin and saw that this was an organization that might be in need of a of a, um, a, a printer, a press person, and saying, you know, hey, this really isn't working out for me where I'm at. Maybe I could find my way with the church here. And then, may which isn't a question necessarily his conversion, but maybe his, his intentions in origination? Well, you're not alone in that cynicism. And uh, lots of people in those days who were in the printing business, who were fellow uh, publishers, uh, used some of those arguments uh, to say that's why he's joining up with the Mormons. I, I don't completely buy into it. I, I feel he was absolutely sincere. I see his written work. I see his hymns. I see his poetry. I see his devotion. Uh, he was an unusual man, though, and he was always considered unusual. There were many nicknames that were given him that were uh, belittling uh, to a certain extent. He was he was always unique and uh, and uh, eccentric, is for sure. And uh, he did take pride in his capabilities. He was even told in section 57, the time when he was called to be printer unto the church, he was told that he uh, seeketh to excel, <laughs> uh, which is absolutely correct. Uh, he was a prideful man and he needed to come back to his humility. He did. He, he struggled with that. And on many occasions, he, uh, uh, he strived to, uh, strove to be a humble man and uh, even in his writings. But uh, that was his challenge. He was an odd man, an eccentric, and he did uh, struggle with pride. Now, you said that there were some nicknames, and you said it kind of a unique or eccentric. Were there any other sort of funny or odd names that were given to W.W. Phelps? Well, he was in the, the War of 1812. He was in uh, northern New York, where so many people were recruited. And he became a, a fifer, using the, a fife mm -hmm. uh, as they marched. 
And uh, when he then got into politics in, in Northern New York in 1828, 29, as a publisher, uh, some of his opponents called him Pfeiffer Phelps, uh, with P-H, Pfeiffer Phelps, uh, to uh, kind of mock him. Uh, and he said that's all he was in the military, was just a Pfeiffer. Uh, later uh, in the church, he uh, played the role of uh, Satan or the devil in the temple ceremonies. And that uh, created quite a bit of laughter and mirth because he acted everything out so completely. Uh, and so one of his uh, nicknames was the devil also. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. All right. So we're working our way through these 10 interesting facts about W.W. Phelps. Uh, how about number three? Phelps, even though self-educated, was the most learned man in early Mormonism with his skills in printing, publishing, languages, history, geography, and numerous sciences. He prided himself in uh, knowing something about all kinds of languages, even claimed the, he knew 14 languages. Uh, he had dabbled certainly in the classics in Greek and Latin and, and Hebrew. Uh, and when in 1836, while living in Kirtland as Joseph Smith's uh, main scribe uh, on all sorts of issues in 1835 and 36, uh, he was uh, thrilled to be part of that Hebrew learning. And uh, when Joseph uh, used linguistic means to try to explain some of the doctrines. It was actually Phelps who was writing in his behalf using those languages. Uh, he knew all sorts of sciences. And when they got to Deseret, this is clear after the uh, death of Joseph Smith, uh, he helped identify Deseret as the name that they would want to have. And he helped set up the Deseret Horticultural Society, the Deseret News, uh, the University of Deseret, uh, the Deseret Alphabet. He was engaged in all those things because he, he he knew science. Uh, he was part of the exploration uh, in Deseret. Uh, he was the first one to climb Mount Nebo uh, and draw maps of that area. He thrilled in being able to tell people in all of his essays about all these historical and geographical phenomenon and, and scientific phenomena. He talked a lot about cholera. He knew about it. Uh, because of his knowledge, he could tell people things that the average person on the street knew nothing about. So an interesting character for sure between oh, absolutely. you know his past and the, and then certainly his, his his complexities as we'll get into as well but always being able to 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 speak a little about a lot of things. Um, number four is W. W. Phelps was the real force behind the church's first hymnal, Sacred Hymns, that contained ninety hymns and was published in eighteen thirty six. He authored twenty five hymns and adapted, altered, or corrected an additional thirty seven of those original hymns. So we have recently here in the Cultural Hall uh, shared an interview that I did with Dr. Jenny Reeder about Emma Smith, and I think the narrative that we hear within the churches that the original hymnal was uh, the duty and calling of Emma Smith. So am I hearing some debate? Maybe it was a little bit of W.W. Phelps and a little Emma Smith? I would say it's 80% uh, W.W. Phelps and 20% Emma Smith. Okay. Um, and that's uh, quite an extent. And I, maybe Jenny hasn't thought it through in that sense. She once was on a presentation where I actually asked a little bit about that question. It is true. Section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants calls her to work on gathering hymns. Uh, so, so she had that assignment. Uh, in 1832, the first year that the saints really were establishing themselves in Jackson County, Missouri in Independence, where Phelps ran the W.W. Phelps and Company printing office in behalf of the church, uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and a few others came to visit in April 1832. 
Uh, and uh, they talked about all sorts of assignments that would happen with the church's literary firm. And uh, Phelps was assigned to create an almanac, for example. But he, he was assigned to then start work on that hymnal. Uh, and to then gather from Emma Smith any of her selected hymns. And so in the evening and the morning star, from that point on, monthly, new hymns appeared on the last page. Some of them were these original ones written by Phelps. The first one to appear was uh, Redeemer of Israel, which was such an important one to us. The second one was Now Let Us Rejoice, which is also important to us. Uh, and he composed all sorts of hymns that later appeared uh, in the uh, original hymnal, like I said, 25 of them. Some of them were written in Missouri. Some of them were written then in Ohio during that year that Phelps lived in Ohio. And we uh, it's been my observation that the uh, Protestant types of hymns, uh, and there are about 20 of those in those 90, were selected, picked uh, by Emma Smith. A few of them appeared in the Evening and the Morning Star and, the, and under the title Selected Hymns, which we, uh, which many of us interpret to mean they were the ones selected uh, by uh, uh, Emma. A few of those even, however, were altered or corrected uh, by uh, Brother Phelps to make them Mormonized with the uh, restoration flavor. Uh, so she helped pick hymns, but she had nothing to do with the uh, uh, printing of them in the evening and the morning star. And then when it came to Ohio, then in 1835 and 36, and Joseph Smith once again assigned Phelps to publish the book, he, he did it. Uh, he probably consulted a bit with Emma Smith. He actually lived in their home. Uh, but uh, she was so busy with other things. And we don't see her particular hand prints or fingerprints uh, in the publication itself. And in the preface to the book, it's clearly in Phelps's language. Uh, other people have acknowledged that long before I even wrote the biography. So uh, it's Phelps who was the primary force. I'm not trying to take anything away from her assignment. And her name does appear on the frontispiece of the book. It is true that it has her name there. So, and I think that's it. That's in her honor. Uh, and Joseph probably wanted to have it that way. So do, so do we recognize it in our narrative of the history because... Um, we have that section where Emma was called to do it. Is that why we probably I, I, I tell think that? so. Oh, I think so. Uh, so many people study in Come Follow Me, for example, uh, individual sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. They study that thoroughly, each section quite thoroughly, and then they think they have a grasp of the whole story. Well, that's only a small snippet of the story of the hymns, but the people have come across from that section. Oh, well... The, she's the thing behind that hymnal and and her does, name does appear in, uh, in that book let us to move to the the uh, last one before we take a break here number five is phelps was a priesthood leader in addition to publishing and hymn writing he was the primary presiding high priest in missouri from 1832 to 1837 uh, in 1832 when he arrived there was a council of seven high priests who end up running the church. The high priesthood had been introduced in 1831. Uh, and so people who had the high priesthood and that ordination presided over everyone else, including the elders uh, who existed. Uh, and it was decided that these seven presiding high priests, uh, six of them uh, were the, the three who were over the printing establishment. That was W.W. Phelps one. Oliver Cowdery two, John Whitmer three, and then the then the bishop Brick, which was uh, uh, Edward Partridge, the bishop, with his two counselors, uh, Isaac Morley and uh, 
<laughs> his name is not coming to me right this second. Uh, anyway, the, they were six, and then they added one more to present. In 1864, when George A. Smith, who was at that point the church historian, interviewed W.W. Uh, w. Phelps, Brother Phelps claimed that he was called to be over the spiritual affairs of the church in Zion, as they called it, and uh, Edward Partridge was over the temporal affairs. And in effect, they kind of all did it together, the seven high priests. Uh, when they were kicked out of Jackson County, uh, of course, these seven high priests continued to take care of the saints in Clay County, uh, and they even established some branches, and it was obvious that the, these high priests ran things. And then we have uh, Zion's Camp coming to Missouri uh, to help rescue, and we know that story. And when Joseph arrived in Clay County, he established a presidency and a high council modeled after the presidency and high council he had established just months earlier in Ohio. And at that point, we had two presidencies with two high councils. We had the church presidency, and this is what they were called, the presidency of the church in Ohio, the presidency of the church in Missouri. And they were considered pretty much co-equal, although the presiding high priest over everything uh, was Joseph Smith. And then they had the presidency of the high priesthood, which was the title used uh, before we called it the First Presidency. We didn't call it the First Presidency until 1835. We called it the Presidency of the High Priesthood. But the Presidency of the High Priesthood was at the same time also the Presidency of the Church in Ohio. Hmm. So it is kind of confusing. Now, the uh, the one who was called as President of the Church uh, in Missouri was David Whitmer. But no sooner than when he was called, he was called to go east to work on financial gathering of uh, money. And so he left and wasn't able to preside, so to speak, in Missouri. And so it fell to W.W. Phelps and John Whitmer, which they did. They presided over the church in Missouri. And then they were called by revelation to, uh, together with the Bishop Brick and the High Council, uh, to go to live in Ohio in preparation for the dedication of the House of the Lord there, which we now call the Kirtland Temple. And so we had the two presidencies, the one from Missouri and one from Ohio, living together in Ohio, and they added three more presidents. So we had nine presidents that were made into the council of the presidents that made all the decisions for the church for 11 months there while they were all together. And when Joseph Smith prayed for the presidents in section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple, he was praying for the presidents uh, from Missouri and Ohio and the three others. And by the way, uh, Phelps, uh, who was the second oldest of the nine presidents, the oldest being Joseph Smith Sr., but, uh, but they, they sat in the most prominent positions in the temple dedication because they were the two oldest presidents. But anyway, he, was, uh, he, he still was pretty much over the church in Missouri, even during that year that he was gone. And he wrote to the saints in Missouri, giving them counsel. Well, when they went back then, Whitmer stayed in the East. And so, once again, the leadership of the church in Missouri, when they got back, uh, uh, spiritually speaking at least, was uh, Phelps and John Whitmer. Uh, it's true that uh, Partridge was, again, the bishop, but they worked harmoniously with him. And when they were asked to leave Clay County, they found a new place. And the three people who did that, and by the way, uh, it was John Carl who was the counselor too. That you couldn't uh, remember the name just a minute. Yeah, and, and, and so it was uh, Phelps, Whitmer, uh, Partridge and Coral, as a foursome who discovered the new place to go live in Caldwell County, and they identified that the settlement as Far West, uh, Phelps gave it the name of Far West, and he even set up a temple committee, uh, and so he presided over the church again until uh, 
uh, late 1837, when uh, Joseph Smith came in November and uh, called it just a stake of the of Zion at that point, and, and then it was in 1838 that all hell broke loose as far as uh, uh, Phelps's relationship with the church and the uh, Mormon Missouri War and all types of things. And that's what we'll get into as we come back into the third block of the cultural hall. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you have a subject that you would like us to cover, we would love to hear from you. Contact at theculturalhall.com is the email, or there is the Contact Us tab at theculturalhall.com. Uh, a great way for you to recommend future guests of the Cultural Hall. If you think, think you might be a great guest of the Cultural Hall, you're more than welcome to reach out to us as well. A huge shout out to the folks over at Utah Taste Off for sponsoring our email. If you guys looking like looking at great pictures of food and finding out ways that you can try tasty, delicious things, uh, follow at Utah Taste Off on Instagram. Bruce, we go now to the final five. Uh, the six through ten facts about W.W. Phelps. And you can find all these facts, by the way, in the show notes uh, with this episode. I'm particularly curious about number six, which is that Phelps was excommunicated a record three times, but that he returned each time. We actually put that in the uh, background to the book uh, because it is a curious fact and it, it causes interest just as it has done for you. Sure. Always the context. I always tried to teach the context. There's a, everything has a contextual background, and without the context, it's never understood. But in brief, uh, there were two apostles who uh, went to Missouri to live after the Kirtland Temple was dedicated. These are uh, Thomas Marsh and, uh, and David Patton. And uh, in those days, the Twelve did not preside over the entire church. That phenomenon did not begin until 1841, after the return of the, the Brigham Young's 12 mission uh, in Britain. Then the 12 were given the assignment to preside over the entire church under the First Presidency, but not before that. In, in fact, they were explicitly directed that their only presiding responsibility was away from the two places where there was already a presidency and a high council. That, those were the presiding officers. Hmm. Now, it is true that uh, many of the apostles served as ad hoc members of high councils uh, in uh, both uh, Ohio and Missouri, and this was true for than uh, Thomas Marsh. But Marsh uh, was always looking for ways to excel himself. He, he wanted to be prominent and important. And he kind of uh, cozy up to uh, Joseph Smith when there was this great apostasy in 1838. He spent a few months in uh, Kirtland, having gone from Missouri. He and Patton both went. And uh, they helped clean house, so to speak. And they got rid of four members of the 12 who were, had been originally called. Uh, and uh, he tried to show his loyalty then. And he claimed that uh, Phelps and Whitmer back, uh, David, uh, John Whitmer, excuse me, back in Missouri uh, were not necessarily so loyal. He was planting that seed. And when he got back, uh, he got involved uh, in convincing some members of the High Council that uh, Phelps and Whitmer should not be there. And uh, it's a long story, but making it short, uh, he had a coup, a power play, uh, Thomas Marsh, and, and uh, David Patton with him uh, to uh, hold a trial that was totally uh, irregular. It didn't follow anything that we follow today in uh, disciplinary measures that is based on sections 102 and 107 of the Doctrine of Covenants. They didn't follow that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and they got rid of uh, Phelps and Whitmer as the leaders of the uh, church there in uh, Missouri and even excommunicated them. So that was the first excommunication, but it was totally irregular and it was part of a power play. But when Joseph Smith arrived in Missouri to live, uh, he 
uh, uh, Phelps said, I, I'm not guilty. I'm okay. Can you get me back? And yeah. and Joseph sought a revelation and got one. It's not in the Doctrine and Covenants, but it's in the uh, Joseph Smith papers, the, the revelation that puts Phelps back into the church. Uh, and uh, Phelps then helped uh, during this Mormon-Missouri War period. But at the very end, Joseph Smith uh, felt that he was betrayed into the hands of the enemy uh, that night that he went to have a peace parley uh, with, uh, with General Lucas uh, of the Missouri militia. And uh, it was planted in his head that uh, uh, Hinkle and Phelps and a few others turned him over so that he would be imprisoned uh, deliberately, which was not the case at all, as you look into the documents, but that's how he came to believe it all throughout the Liberty jail period that he had. And, uh, and other people started to believe it too. And so uh, when the saints were exiled out of Missouri in 1839 and uh, 1838 into 1839, and they found a peaceful pasture, uh, temporarily at least in Quincy, Illinois, uh, Brigham Young, who had engineered getting them out of the state, held a conference and at the conference, uh, uh, George Harris of the High Council made a motion that about 10 different people, and by this time, uh, uh, Thomas Marsh was among those people, mm -hmm. uh, apostate, but he, he listed about 10 apostates that he felt should be kicked out of the church as a result of their lack of loyalty uh, to Joseph Smith that caused Joseph to languish in prison. And he was still in prison, by the way, when this March uh, 1839 conference took place. And by voice of the people, uh, these 10 people were excommunicated. So once again, it's irregular, uh, but that that's the second time. And yeah, so W.W. Phelps was one of those 10 in, individuals. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's okay, two. So What's the third time? <laughs> and this is actually the most interesting of all, but it's later. Uh, we all know that uh, Phelps came back into good grace with uh, Joseph Smith. Joseph welcomed him back and lovingly and forgave him and all that. And then uh, he was, uh, Joseph and Phelps were very close to each other all through up the, uh, all up through the martyrdom. And then Phelps was very instrumental in helping out the 12. And as they went west uh, into uh, winter quarters, Brigham Young knew that they needed to have a printing press again. They had lost access to the printing press in Nauvoo to the enemies. Uh, and so he assigned Phelps to go back east and, and buy a new press. And he did. That was his assignment. That was his missionary assignment. He went back. Uh, Phelps had already entered into polygamy by this time, having been sealed to a couple of other women. But uh, So he felt he was authorized to go forward. And when he was in Boston buying this press, uh, he uh, talked to another elder in the church who everybody knew. And he told him, this is Henry Jacobs, you have authority. I'm telling you, 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 you perform the sealing. I have three young girls here that I'm going to be sealed to. And you perform it for me. You do it. And, uh, and so he was sealed to these uh, three uh, Boston girls, I call them. And, uh, and then they traveled uh, back to winter quarters uh, by boat most of the time and uh, arrived. And, uh, and by this time, of course, he had had uh, sexual relationships with these three. And, uh, and he arrived in uh, uh, winter quarters about the very same time that uh, Brigham Young and the 12 had, were returning from their first visit to Salt Lake and identifying it as the place. And they returned back to winter quarters. So this was a simultaneous meeting. And when Brigham Young saw that Phelps had these three girls with him, uh, he said, who gave you authority to do that? He wanted to make sure that anybody who engaged in plural marriage would get permission directly from him. Mm -hmm. And so they talked about it in a council and decided uh, he didn't have authority. And so they excommunicated him in, in not in a regular disciplinary council, but they uh, they talked about it at, 
and uh, but they wanted to make the point. But he was excommunicated, and two days later, is rebaptized hmm. because they just wanted to make the point. Hmm. And then he came back in immediately and was still part of the Council of Fifty and part of everything, and was a major player in Desret, as I've already mentioned. And and there is, I'm sure you could write an entire book just on the three excommunications of W. W. Felt. It, it sounds like very, there is. It's quite fascinating. A bit. Yeah. Every one of them, and and uh, I do go into extensive detail about uh, the first two and in uh, three or four paragraphs in that third one too. So we, we've got a, we've got a few more that we need to uh, find our way through. Uh, this number seven is W.W. Phelps was Joseph Smith's primary ghostwriter in Nauvoo in numerous historical, doctrinal, and political essays. When I was outlining uh, the chapter plan for this uh, book, uh, I figured I'd only have a couple of chapters in Nauvoo because I figured he was somewhat of a minor player. The biggest surprise of them all in my research was in the second half of my time, as actually after I was retired, I went into depth into finding out what jo- what Phelps was doing. And I discovered that uh, unbeknownst to most people, Phelps became the major player in the Nauvoo printing office. And uh, Joseph Smith uh, took over the times and seasons because he wanted to get it away from uh, Ebenezer Robinson, whom he didn't trust. And so he took over in 1841 and uh, in late, pardon me, late 1841, but into 1842. And uh, almost everybody knows that uh, the nominal editor of the Times and Seasons was Joseph Smith for eight months, except he didn't even visit the, uh, the printing office. He was really busy doing so many other things. I go into detail here. And, and then I also studied one by one, every single article that appeared in the Times and Seasons starting in the middle of 1841 when Phelps reappeared, uh, and I identified, based on his very identifiable writing style that I had seen in so many of the previous writings, and it was uh, verbose and grand eloquent and this type of thing. Anyway, I was able to identify uh, all sorts of writings, and uh, in behalf of Joseph Smith, with Joseph Smith's name attached to it in the Times and Seasons, there were uh, half a dozen uh, doctrinal pieces uh, on the Holy Ghost, baptism for the dead, uh, the government of God, uh, that later appeared in Joseph Fielding Smith's teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. But I, other people have actually hinted at it in a few other places, but it really became obvious to me that Phelps wrote those in behalf of Joseph Smith, uh, and uh, and that's a major thing. Uh, he was also given the assignment to work on the history at this point, and the Wentworth letter, which came out about the same time, March of 1842, uh, it's now widely acknowledged that uh, Phelps, at the very least, helped edit it, and in several paragraphs wrote it, uh, the uh, the Wentworth letter, including uh, some of the articles of faith, uh, are pretty much his composition, uh, and a few other items that are in, uh, the, uh, of significance that are quoted widely uh, as, I, as if from Joseph Smith were actually ghostwritten. Now, uh, as I say ghostwritten, I emphasize that Joseph Smith would have agreed with everything in there or else he would have opposed it, as he did on a few other things that have been attributed to him earlier in 1841 and 1840. Some things have been attributed to him and he came out and said, no, I have nothing to do with that. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure he would have done the same thing here. Uh, by 1843, uh, uh, Joseph Smith had become mayor of Nauvoo and was very politically involved. 
And then he decided to run for presidency of the United States in early 1844. And he had written to all of the presidential candidates. And the one who wrote his letters was Phelps. So he needed somebody to write his things and Phelps became his ghostwriter for that. So that's why I mentioned historical, like the Wentworth letter and another very important historical piece, all these doctrinal ones, and then uh, uh, all, all the political ones, even his platform, uh, the views of, of Joseph Smith, uh, 17 pages in, in, in uh, pamphlet form. That was written by Phelps, and it was easy to identify that because you can read in the historical documents that he was a, that Phelps was assigned to do it, and it was Phelps who read it to the group and so on. And when the uh, Council of the Fifty came forward, and we now have the full minutes of that and the, and a full complete discussion of that in the Joseph Smith papers, we find that Phelps was the uh, main guy who was helping to put together the Constitution. He was the writer for Joseph Smith when it came to political things. Which moves us directly into number eight as we look at this list of, of uh, 10 things about W.W. W. Phelps. Number eight is he played a key role in the Council of Fifty under both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. He was the one who coined the term theodemocracy that epitomized the belief system promoted by the Council of Fifty. So maybe we should real quick set what the Council of Fifty is if people aren't aware of what it is and then what theodemocracy is. The Council of Fifty, uh, when it was created, secretively, completely uh, without the knowledge of uh, other people like the wives and children and, and average citizens of Nauvoo. It was created uh, to help prepare for the time when Christ would come and rule and reign uh, uh, over the whole world. And uh, this was a preliminary government. And in the midst of this, Joseph Smith was considered to be the prophet, priest, and king leading up to the time when uh, the Savior would come. And uh, as they met together, uh, and, and Phelps, by the way, was one of the founding members on March 17th, 1844. Uh, uh, there were about 25 of those, and it eventually got up to 52 people. And uh, that was supposed to be the size of it, so they called it the Council of 50, although it had a different title uh, having to do with the government of God and his laws. In effect, it, it was the place where they plotted strategy about Joseph Smith's candidacy for the presidency of the United States, where they talked this, but they certainly were talking about a theocracy or a theodemocracy led by the priesthood that was would also be democratic and would rule in benevolent ways over the United States first and then over the world uh, as we prepared for the second coming. That was the whole concept of it. Uh, it was very heady and very enthusiastic. I think that today, even with some people, there is the thought because of prophecies that have been spoken about a time when uh, members of the church will will take over the government. We hear always about the, you know, the Constitution hanging by a thread, and it will be at that time that members of the church will be able to step in and sort of save the country and save the Constitution. And some of those roots, I think, come from this Council of 50 and that idea of a, of a theo uh, theocracy. Well, they like the Constitution of the United States, although they identified a few of its flaws, but they totally recognized that it was not working for them. We had tried again and again and again in 1839, 40, 41, 42, 43, to uh, seek redress from Congress, from the President of the United States. We were getting nowhere, uh, and, uh, and Joseph was being sought out by law enforcement officers from Missouri to try to take him and kidnap him and bring the so-called justice back in their state. And it was just a horrific period and uh, we had given up uh, uh, on uh, 
the constitutional authorities in Washington, D.C., and and in time we had lost uh, favor with the Missouri governor too, and things were not going well. So we had to have our own thing, and we figured that, okay, we'll do it. Yeah, well, and Phelps was a, a, a key player in drawing up that constitution that they wanted to have. It's now being sold by various right-wing groups in the in church, uh, the Constitution of the Council of 50, and uh, that uh, largely was written by Brother Phelps. Uh, number nine is, although not generally acknowledged as such, Phelps was the de facto editor of the Times and Seasons beginning in 1842, The Wasp, The Nauvoo Neighbor, and The Deseret News. Uh, this is what surprised me as I got into it. I, I looked at every article in those newspapers and it was fairly easy to identify and I made my list uh, of those that I thought uh, were uh, written. Uh, most of the time, of course, without any attribution, uh, every once in a while there was his name in it, particularly if it was uh, some poetry. Uh, but he was the main force in the Nauvoo printing office. I think the biggest reason why his name didn't appear on the mastheads of any of these is because uh, some people didn't trust him in the church because he supposedly had been an apostate. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and his name is still bandied around as perhaps having been an infidel back in the Missouri period. I, as I said, he was unrighteously accused of certain things. This is not to say that he didn't make mistakes. By the way, back in Missouri, he and John Whitmer did make some mistakes and uh, and misappropriated some of the funds and and were not completely correct in all they did. And then, then they took offense uh, when uh, other people went after them. So I'm not saying that he was blameless, but uh, but I think that his reputation was such. And so uh, it was pretty much on the down low, all of the things that he was doing as far as the church was concerned, uh, as far as the general membership knowing about it. Uh, but it was obvious that he played his role. And then when you look at the actual documents, and most especially the Council of 50 documents, it's so obvious that he was running the printing office. It, it is, is clear in those documents that he was the main man in the printing office. You know, and we've got one more point, but I, I wish to just click a pause here and say, hey, you know, this is a very significant and powerful um, person within the early time of the church. And it's not someone, certainly we hear more about W.W. Phelps than a lot of other people, but to hear of his claim and his power and his ability and and his um, work and his call and all those things, I certainly don't think that we talk about him in... Um, in balance with how much he impacted the early time of the church. And that's precisely what I say in both the preface in the book and in the epilogue too. He deserves more credit than he's been given. And the mission of this book was to show all the multifaceted ways that he participated. And he was an important person. I promised everybody who read the early chapters prior to his publication, and then after his publication, I promised everybody that they would learn a whole lot more about Joseph Smith and the whole restoration movement because he was involved in so many of the steps along the way. And indeed, they've come back and said, oh, I've learned so much more about Joseph Smith. And they were close people. And after all, remember, the poem that was created one month after Joseph Smith's death called Joseph Smith, praise to the man who came in with Jehovah. Mm-hmm. Uh, millions will know Brother Joseph again. That's Brother Phelps who wrote that because they were very close. And he wrote other poetry in honor of Joseph Smith besides that. They were they had become really close. And, and in the Council of 50 Minutes, uh, brother, uh, brother Joseph uh, was referring to the newspapers. And he said, what a wonderful editor Phelps is. I'm not closer to any other human being than this man. 
he said that in the council of 50 minutes. The number 10 on the list that you provided, and we sort of will wrap this out here, and this is just a, a, a brief overview of many of the things that people can find in your book, which is We'll Sing and We'll Shout, The Life and Times of W.W. Phelps. Link for, uh, where people can purchase that in the show notes for this episode. But the number 10 that you say, and I would be curious as to why you felt to include this as well, Phelps edited the church's first almanac, the Deseret Almanac, which was from 1851 to 1865. Well, we've done almanacs in our uh, more recent history. The Deseret News Church news people have done it. My relative, Adele Van Orden, uh, edited those almanacs uh, from the church news uh, in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And they were chock full of information about the church and its history and its personnel. And, and well, that's a, he modeled that to a certain degree after those early almanacs. I, I mentioned already today that in 1832, Joseph Smith assigned Phelps to be to create an almanac. He wasn't able to do it because of all the persecutions then and then the events later in, in uh, Ohio and, and Illinois precluded that opportunity. But as soon as they got to uh, Deseret, he was gonna take it on. And, uh, and since he was pretty much running the uh, Deseret News under the official editorship of, of uh, Willard Richards, uh, who was busy doing other things and also was not in good health. So Phelps ran the printing office in Salt Lake also. He, he had purchased the printing press himself, actually. So he ran that office. Well, he, he said, I'm going to print with this, this almanac. That's my assignment. And so starting in 1851, he advertised the almanac in the Desert News and then published it annually from 1851 to 1865. And it's chock full of information. And he has all sorts of aphorisms in there and uh, many interesting ta ta tales about the history and his relationship with the early leaders. It's fascinating reading just to see what he did in the Desert Almanac. So, Bruce, let me ask you, uh, you know, we've gone through these 10 facts. You've certainly discovered uh, a lot, uh, brought to light a lot about W.W. Phelps. And we, we talked very early in this discussion about um, you wanting to share some things and being essentially told no, Right. Uh, you don't share those things. You're expressly told uh, you that you couldn't share those things. And so, you know, we hear the story of W.W. Phelps, one who was, you know, undyingly loyal to the church. And I think that that classification could also uh, fall upon you as well, that you, even though you felt like, hey, these things could be shared, that, you know, people should know about these things when they told you, hey, don't, you didn't. And, and you arrive at this point in your your life where you're seeing that these things are being able to be shared and that people are able to learn and, and in some ways being able to be buoyed up, you know, against doubt or anything, because we have all of the information and we can kind of just know, understand and, and learn with all of, all of the facts, right? Ha, ha, what, what helped you to stay loyal in that time where you disagreed with what you were being told? Well, I was always a believer, uh, having been brought up righteously by my parents and, and feeling the Holy Spirit as I was growing up at my baptism and later on. The hymns have always played a huge part of my life. I was given the opportunity to become a pianist uh, with lessons uh, starting at age nine, and I learned to play all those hymns, including the ones from Phelps. Uh, and so the music always meant a great deal to me, and it has always, throughout my entire ministry, I've played the music. Uh, and, and so I, I was always a believer in, in spite of all the challenges, and I recognized that challenges enter everybody's lives, and this would be one of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, I figured that the time might come uh, when we'd be more open and honest about these things. And uh, it's a whole subject of how this gradually changed. There were people uh, uh, in the 70s uh, uh, and, and with listening ears in the 12 and the first presidency who were willing to accept that idea of, of the change. And I figured that was going to come. Anyway, I was, I was completely devoted to my students and uh, to the kingdom of God. I tried to build it uh, locally. I, uh, I'm now in my fifth I council assignment uh, and I've been a bishop twice. I've served on general church committees. Uh, so I, I've retained my loyalty, but I'm ever so grateful that uh, I now can be open and honest when it comes to history. Well, and I think it's impactful, too, because, I mean, one of the lessons that, that I learned from from your life is you also could have very easily said, oh, forget it, church. If we can't be, you know, this, I'm out. And and to look at what your life has meant and what you've been able to accomplish because you were able to say, hey, there is this part, but I still know that the gospel is the truth and I'll be able to love the students and be able to teach them and sort of hold in place that that part that m- maybe didn't completely agree with you, but that you didn't, you know, we always say well, you didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You allowed that that place for dissonance to be there, but still made your life in such a way that you could serve and and grow and learn until the time was appropriate to be able to share those things. I think that's a pretty unique lesson, and and I don't know that coming into this conversation that I would have thought that that would be one of the takeaways that I would have from this conversation. So I appreciate you being willing to be open and and to share to share that because I know not everyone would be. Some people would not, you know. Some people would kind of bury that down a little bit. Well, it's become a theme of mine in, in recent times. Uh, and I, uh, I I direct the Springville Family History Center. Uh, and one of the things I promote is writing your own histories and about your ancestors and uh, and being willing to deal with the hard subjects, warts and all, mm-hmm. uh, I, I bring up. Uh, because we're all, after all, we're all human beings. We've all made mistakes. We're all, we're all dependent upon the redemptive uh, work of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us make huge mistakes. We all have need to repent and to be uh, cleansed from sin. Uh, and and this is true of leadership. And, and it's all part of the human condition. And in our church, we have a lot of uh, uh, skeletons and swamps. But it doesn't mean that these people weren't trying. They were trying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see in Joseph Smith a lot of mistakes. But I also see in him a devoted uh, servant to try to do the right thing. I see in W.W. Phelps a man who made many mistakes. But a devoted man. I see in my own ancestors, people who were enthusiastic about the gospel, but they made some mistakes. Uh, It's all part of what a human condition is and what the restoration is all about, in my opinion. We have three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I think you might have just asked this first one, but I'll just double check. Uh, What is your calling right now? I'm a member of the Stake High Council of the Springville, Utah, Hobble Creek West Stake. Wow. It's a bit, and I, it's the fifth time I've served in that kind of a capacity. I was ordained a high priest at age 29 in my first high council assignment, and here I am in my 70s doing high council work again. <laughs> if, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Well, teaching has always been my uh, greatest enthusiasm, and I'm assigned to Temple and Family History in the stake, and my job is to help teach about that. So I guess I'm in my element teaching about uh, something I love so much, uh, family history. The third question we ask you to interpret however you would like, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? I thought about this, yes. Um, 
the favorite part of my faith is in section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants and uh, and in uh, 2 Nephi 26. Behold, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And uh, and the reason that it's so, uh, and to prove that, uh, the revelation goes on to say that uh, Jesus suffered for our sins and maladies and so they can bring us all back to him. I believe that every single human being on this earth is loved by God and are equal in his sight and he will redeem them from their sins, even grievous sins, if uh, they're willing to come back to him. That's why we dedicate so much of our time and talent to uh, seeking out our kindred dead, of course, to redeem Israel on both sides of the veil. And then uh, in 2 Nephi 26, all are alike unto God. He invites them all to come unto him, no matter what their circumstance. Everybody is invited. And uh, that's my favorite gospel principle. Well, Bruce, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, (laughs) that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, BigMike'sProducts.com and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall.